Welcome to The Person Podcast. This is our first episode, and I am really excited to have Dr. Kathleen Bogart joining us today. Hi, Kathleen. How are you? Hi, I'm great, Stephen. How are you? Pretty good. Thanks so much for being here on, on our first show. Absolutely. Very happy to join you. Awesome. So for everyone listening, Dr. Kathleen Bogart, currently she is a associate professor at Oregon State University. She obtained her PhD from Tufts University in 2012. And um, Dr. Bogart is the director um, of the Disability and Social Integration Lab at Oregon State. She's She's a social health psychologist specializing in ableism and rare disorders such as facial paralysis. She has received grants from the National Institutes of Health, Good Samaritan Hospital, and the Mobius Syndrome Foundation. In 2016, Dr. Bogart was named Professor of the Term by the Panhellenic Executive Council of OSU. So Kathleen, I'm gonna let you, um, obviously we've heard about um, some of your background and credentials and I want to let you kind of just fill us in on anything else that you might want to share about what you've done and who you are. Sure, yeah. Um, You know, my background is in psychology, um, and I really became interested in psychology when I was pretty young. Um, And, you know, I really attribute it to my experience being born with Mobius syndrome. which I know Stephen is familiar with, um, but in case guests are not, um, it's a rare disorder that uh, results in facial paralysis and limited side-to-side eye movement. Um, So, you know, having communication challenges growing up really made me interested in um, communication and interaction. Uh, And, you know, I think that ultimately is why I ended up pursuing, you know, multiple degrees in psychology. Um, You know, from the beginning, I wasn't sure kind of if I wanted to do communication in terms of writing or um, teaching or something like that. And ultimately, I, um, in my undergrad career, I had some really good mentors who told me, you know, kind of gently, you know, you might want to consider studying Mobius syndrome, um, especially because I was finding that there was very little research um, on the topic. So, yeah, that kind of generally led me to study Mobius syndrome and then broaden out to other types of um, facial differences and disabilities. And so now, yeah, I'm at Oregon State University and you know, I spend my time there teaching often about disability and social psychology um, and also doing research, uh, especially centering people with uh, facial paralysis and disability. Right. And yes, um, you're correct that I, you know, I myself um, know of Mobius, you know, I have Mobius. And so just personally to see somebody, um, you know, working in a field that that's, um, you know, helping, helping to kind of bring to light, um, the condition, but also to help people, 
um, navigate, you know, society and, and life uh, is, is great to see. And so, I, you know, I obviously, you and I have talked before and, you know, I'm, I'm a huge, uh, you know, I, I say fan of yours because, I mean, this, this is really Aww. good stuff go, going on for us. So, you know, I, I appreciate it. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and so um, in terms of, of today, so I, I want to start out and just because this podcast um, you know, I envision cent centering it around people and the common message that um, you know there, there's so much there's so much going on in the world, and in my experience, a lot of times people that sh that that you come across um, in you know everyday life are the ones that you can, that you learn so much from, and so. I wanted to ask you to describe your life experience up to this point in one word. Hmm. Um, interesting. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you know, it, it's a good choice. And just to kind of, I guess, give some, give some background. So can you you know, maybe just mention one or two sentences that kind of supports why right now that, that, that's your, that's your word choice. Yeah. I mean, that really is kind of my life philosophy is to, um, experience as many things as possible, um, and learn from as many people and things that I can. Um, so, you know, starting off when I was born, had Mobius syndrome, um, and that certainly gives me um, a very unique ex uh, perspective on things um, and presented me with some unusual opportunities. And I always try to take advantage of um, a positive opportunity or an adventure when I can get it. Um, so, you know, I, I've done lots of things, uh, that I consider interesting. Um, you know, I always take advantage of travel opportunities when, uh, when that's possible. I'm really looking forward to, um, the pandemic being over for many different reasons. Um, but one small personal reason is that, um, I really look forward to traveling again, um, you know, living in different places, meeting people from different walks of life, um, all of that. Yeah, no, um, that's great. And um, I, appreciate, I appreciate you sharing that. And it's, um, you know, so you've touched on, you know, things kind of early on in your life, you know, Mobius and that kind of being a, a foundation or one of the reasons that you, would go on to to study, um, you know, research and psychology and, and those things. But uh, can you share, you know, any other memorable moments or, or just, you know, maybe like a quirky story or, or highlight that you remember being young that that's kind of stuck with you till now? Um, you know, I, let's see, the first one that pops to mind is, um, you know, really still thinking about kind of interesting experiences that I've had, um, you know, so growing up, uh, my parents were always really supportive and uh, really cared about 
you know, teaching me certain values like curiosity and kindness. And, um, you know, my dad was really the one who um, encouraged my curiosity and creative thinking. Um, so his background is that uh, he's a biologist and he's really interested in animal behavior. And so uh, we also grew up in a household where uh, we discovered that my brother was allergic to all things feather and fur. Um, so we weren't able to have mammals or birds as pets. Um, my dad specialized in reptiles. And so we had a lot of turtles and uh, lizards and, and, and also fish um, in our house uh, as pets instead. And my dad really, uh, encouraged me to observe them and think about, oh, you know, did a really, you know, that turtle did a really surprising thing there, um, you know, or here's a baby box turtle that you have. Um, it's learned how to walk around your hand when you hold it, but it knows not to walk off the edge. Why do you think that is? Um, so, so just, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, considering of details that maybe most people wouldn't. Um, so that was something that really made me, I think, interested in uh, animal behavior really sort of um, was another precursor to being interested in psychology because certainly animal behavior is um, a part of psychology. Um, so, you know, we had, <laughs> we had like this large, uh, box turtle pen that my dad built in the backyard out of chicken wire um, and it was very big and the, the box turtles could live in there um, and have lots of space and rocks to hide under and a halfway broken up um, flower pot that they would use as a little cave to hide in uh, and there were you know at any time three or four of them in there and they would you know, have babies and lay eggs. And uh, the neat thing is the chicken wire was uh, wide enough that adult turtles couldn't fit through, but the baby turtles, when they hatched, could fit through. Um, so they're native to Louisiana. And so we just had kind of some extra baby box turtles running around our backyard. And every now and then we'd find one and sometimes it would become my pet <laughs> also. Oh, nice. uh, but yeah, it's just really, really fun to spend time with creatures that other people might not have thought of as much. Yeah, that's a really neat story. I, I really like that. Um, so, you know, here you are, um, this, you know, the, this this kid with um, a unique, uh, you know, condition and, um, you know, this this kind of curiosity and, and now this, this newfound love of, you know, box turtles and um, parents that are supporting you and you know showing you good values and a good a good way to, towards life so you know going you know having all of that um did you have a point when you were younger you know when you were i guess under 10 or so that you that you that you thought about you know when here we are 2020 that you would be working as a professor at the university 
no <laughs> um not yeah definitely that that wasn't a goal until i actually went to college and kind of saw you know what a what a professor did um but you know you're right my this the, the uh, strength of my parents is that they taught me these values and they always believed me and instilled a lot of confidence in me so um I always had the sense that I could do whatever I wanted to do as long as I worked hard. Um, and so, you know, when I was young, that was kind of a whole variety of things. Uh, I guess stemming from the interest in animals, I wanted to be a zookeeper, and then I wanted to be a vet, and then I wanted to be a zoo vet, <laughs> yeah. and then I wanted to be a novelist. Um, and then I think uh, kind of late high school, uh, I was kind of teetering between I want to be a novelist or I want to be a psychologist. Um, and so when I entered undergrad, I double majored in English creative writing and psychology and figured, eh, I'll make a decision at some point in the next four years. And I right. did. Yeah, that, that's great. And you know, now that you mentioned that, so, so you mentioned, you know, being a novelist, being a writer, and versus, you know, versus, not versus, but all, and or being a professor, being, you know, researcher. And I think, in my opinion, the two are kind of closely similar in a way because, you know, you think about it and a lot of writers and novelists, they kind of deal in people and mm -hmm. society and, you know, a world or a reality that is either similar to ours or a whole different one. And then you think about um, individuals who work in research, um, and I guess in this case, you talk about psychology, and I think there's some similarities there. And so it's interesting that you kind of get to a point where you you had those two, you know, in, in, in each hand, and then you would go on to, to work in psychology and in research. Yeah, I, I think that, I think you're right. I think they do kind of, share some similarities and I think I was kind of at that point honing in on oh you're interested in something about communication and people but not quite sure how that would uh, come out yet but I mean definitely my job today involves a lot of writing a lot of communicating and a lot of thinking about people so um, right I was on the right track awesome so you mentioned um, you know, now you're doing, you know, writing, work, working with people, um, overseeing a lab. So can you share um, just a little bit about some current research that you're doing and, uh, how, you know, how it relates to, to the world or what your vision is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um yeah, so maybe it would make sense to take a step back for a minute and talk about how my research has kind of evolved over the years. Um, sure. So if you if you don't mind, yeah, I'll step back a little bit um, to earlier than my current research. Um, so yeah, as I mentioned, I had some really supportive mentors when I was an undergrad, and I really had this kind of formative moment where near the end of my degree, um, I sat, I had a, a term paper to write in one of my psych classes, and uh, 
I hadn't really looked into what psychology had to say about Mobius syndrome at all until that point. Um, I was more interested in kind of the general idea of psychology. And also, I don't think I was quite comfortable with um, the part of my identity uh, that included Mobius at that point. Um, but, you know, I had some mentors who were, you know, encouraging me to do that. And in the back of my head, I had always imagined there will be a day when I sit down and start doing psych, uh, you, you know, doing at least like a library search of what psychology has to say about Mobius. And I always imagined that I would walk away from the library with, you know, a stack of copies of articles that I had printed out. Um, but that was not the case. Uh, much to my surprise, I found I could only find three articles in psychology or related fields about Mobius syndrome. Um, and so that was not good news for my term paper, <laughs> but right. it was good news for, um, you know, kind of giving me uh, a purpose for what I could do with psychology, you know. So at that point, I decided that I could really make a difference by studying Mobius syndrome. Uh, you know, clearly most researchers were not. Uh, there wasn't a lot out there. I had um, a special motivation and special insight to do that. Um, so why not me? Um, so, you know, after that, I, I went to a master's program at San Francisco State University. Um, and there I worked with David Matsumoto, who's a social psychologist who has um, expertise in facial expression. Um, and so I got a lot of really uh, great foundational knowledge about the role of facial expression in communication. And also, you know, started to reach out and think about what are other foundational ways that we communicate. So, you know, using body language and vocal expression and stuff like that. And I started to know that those were tools that people with facial paralysis had available to them. Um, and then I had another great mentor in that program who um, said, you know, it's it's great that you want to study Lodius syndrome, and I believe that it is, that you should study it in its own right. Um, but he also said, you might want to think about broadening. Think about the commonalities that people with Mobius syndrome have um, to people with other conditions and experiences. And I remember feeling a bit, uh, I, I was like, I had reactants to that at first because, uh, you know, I felt, well, this is such an immediate problem. There's still just three publications on Mobius syndrome and psychology. We really need to learn about Mobius um, and fill that gap before we broaden. Um, mm -hmm. But what he said in the back of my head, uh, you know, really did resonate. And over time, I uh, it, it started to kind of take hold. And I think it took hold at the right time. Um, so I did end up publishing two studies specifically about Mobius syndrome uh, right after I got my master's thesis. Um, and then at that time, I you know was thinking, okay, well maybe now that you know I've I've gotten some Mobius research under my belt, uh, maybe his name was James Newton. Um, maybe maybe Dr. Newton had uh, something 
you know, I had some good insight there. So um, I started thinking about how can I broaden this and find these commonalities and maybe even universalities. Um, and so then I brought in to look at facial paralysis in general and, and did find a lot of commonalities. So, um, for example, an outsider, um, you know, a member of the general public probably hasn't heard of facial paralysis or Mobius syndrome before. Um, and when they see someone with any type of um, facial movement limitation, um, they're going to form some of the same impressions. And I know these are going to be familiar to you, Stephen, and to many people in these communities. You know, they're going to um, assume that the person uh, may not be friendly or happy because they're not seeing a smile on the person's face. Um, they may even assume that the person has intellectual disability. Right. So it doesn't matter um, in, in, from other people's eyes, it doesn't matter what type of facial paralysis have, what underlying condition is causing it, they all have these similar social ramifications. Um, now, you know, I don't want to discount the experience of people who are living with these different types of facial paralysis, because there is a lot of nuance there. Um, and especially, I think there's nuance between being born with a condition that results in facial paralysis and acquiring facial paralysis later in life. And that's something I've spent a lot of time researching and talking to people about. Um, you know, so a, a general... Again, there's nuance that's being washed over here, but um, I'll often hear when I interview people with congenital paralysis that um, it's difficult to uh, separate who they would be without their paralysis um, from who they are now. Um, whereas people who acquire paralysis later uh, have a clear before and after and often describe the onset of their paralysis as a loss, as um, you know, something, something happened to them, their identity got changed or lost or something like that. Um, but I also find that people who are born with their conditions um, have more comprehensive adaptations for communication than those with acquired conditions. Um, so, you know, what this suggests is that having been born with this condition, having um, gone through one's initial development and identity formation with that condition um, may allow for some uh, early adaptations uh, that may be more difficult to accomplish later. Um, so that's, you know, that's kind of one of the areas that uh, I only would have discovered if I had broadened beyond just Mobius syndrome. And that has been a really interesting thing. Um, and actually, the way I got the idea for doing like general versus acquired research is by going to a support group for people with all types of facial paralysis. Um, so I had already been involved with the Mobius Syndrome Foundation and going to the conferences at that point. And, you know, of course, like like a lot of people in our community say, going to a Mobius Syndrome conference for the first time is really life-changing uh, to be with other people who are just like you. Um, but it was 
also life-changing and research-changing for me to go to a mixed facial paralysis support group. So this one was in um, Boston when I was living there at um, Dr. Tessa Hadlock's office um, at Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary. Um, gosh, this was like 10 years ago now. So I don't know if they're still running support groups there. I know um, Tessa Hadlock is still there and doing great work. Um, but you know, I was really kind of floored when I walked in. I happened to be the only person with congenital facial paralysis there. It's much more common to acquire it than to be born with it. Mm -hmm. um, and as people were, you know, this group of, I think, like eight to 10 people were taking turns introducing themselves and talking about the many ways that they had um you know, by surprise, gotten facial paralysis um, later in their lives from things like um, Bell's palsy to cancer to um, surgical errors. Um, I heard a lot of stories that involve, you know, involved feeling um, disrupted in their lives by facial paralysis. And it was just very different from my own experience. Um, so, you know, it, it made me interested in looking at that more systematically. And so I have done comparisons of acquired versus congenital facial paralysis and then looked at disability more broadly as well. Um, so I guess that's a long way of saying that, um, you know, I, I really and proud of the way that my research has evolved from filling a specific and much needed gap on Lodius syndrome to then um, including Lodius syndrome and beyond to look at uh, commonalities across a variety of conditions and disabilities. Right. And no, I, I mean, I love that you went back and kind of explained things from the start, the start to now, because I think you really captured and gave us a lot of important information in terms of, you know, the foundation of, of your research and that, and you know, that, that's super important. And I will say, it's interesting that you mentioned, um, you know, this, this uh, notion of congenital versus acquired facial paralysis, because you know, even myself, um, and, you know, I have no science background, but I have friends who have both, you know, congenital and acquired facial paralysis. And even I can notice a difference in them as far as how they approach or how they, how they adapt to their paralysis. And it's interesting that you, that you mentioned, you know, that, and it, it makes sense too, because obviously some, you know, myself, um, my entire life I've had facial paralysis, you know, I've had limited expression. I can't smile. So, so really I, I can't tell you what it's like to do those things. So I really have no basis to, to, I guess, have a, a sense of, um, I say, you know, extreme, extreme loss, but at the same time, I do at some time, you know, at some points I, I do miss those things or I wish I could do them. But at the same time, I feel that it isn't, it probably isn't as high as others who at one time could do that, but now they've gone through a trauma or an incident where, you know, they're left with um, a different, different way of living to, to put it. So mm -hmm. yeah, just really fascinating stuff, Kathleen. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I really, um, 
that was really a formative thing uh, to, to kind of get others' perspectives on what from the outside would be a very similar disability, but um, from the lived experience, it's quite different. You know, another thing that I that I remember noticing in those meetings was, um, especially for the people who had recently acquired their paralysis, um, it was very salient to them what um, what the, the new challenges were with paralysis and um, what they were needing to adapt to. Like, I've observed that um, a lot of people with Modius, myself included, aren't even aware of the subtle and natural way that we've adapted to our condition. But for someone who, you know, in these cases acquired facial paralysis in adulthood, um, we're, we're very aware and had to, you know, often make like conscious decisions to, to try something new and see if it works. Um, like, here, here's an example. Um, there was one woman who had recently uh, acquired unilateral paralysis, and she was saying, you know, oh, I am, you know, one of the little things that is really getting to me is, you know, um, one of my morning comforts used to be to, you know, um, have some coffee and eat my breakfast over the newspaper. And, you know, just kind of eat my breakfast over the newspaper and leisurely read it. And she said, but now, you know, the food and the coffee is falling out of my mouth onto the newspaper. And I, and I thought about it for a minute and I thought, oh, I've not had that problem before. Um, I wonder why. And then I realized it was because when I read and I'm eating, I hold the literature up. So I'm not bending my head down. Um, I don't have good lip, lip closure because of my paralysis. But as long as I held my head, you know, in a neutral position and not facing down, food's not going to fall out. And so that wasn't an adaptation that I was ever conscious of, but it's certainly something I must have developed unconsciously early on. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I can definitely relate to to similar things like that where, you know, again, someone like me who, who has a, congen a congenital condition, um, I'm sure I, I do things that I don't even notice anymore to, to adapt. We've heard about, um, you know, some of your early, year, early years and schooling and some of the framework um, for your research that would, you know, go on to, to serve as um, framework and or motivation um, to, to, you know, go on further into your career. And, and so kind of taking things um, into two segments here. So obviously I think as people um, we tend to have, um, at least in my experience, you know, we tend to have um, ourselves as people, you know, obviously um, for example, for myself, I, you know, grew up, I went to school, I went to grad school. And so I have this sense of, um, you know, education and I've learned knowledge and I've learned um, skills that I use in my career, which, which, which are all good things. But I've also, I've also um, learned, you know, things from people, from experiences, from traveling that um, I argue you can't get from, from books or from 
um, curriculum, you know, th th these are just inherently um, personal things that come from interaction, from communication, and just from living in our world. So, so kind of with that said, um, can you can you tell us, you know, going from your journey from, um, you know, growing up and before going to college and before starting your PhD work and becoming Dr. Kathleen Bogart. I mean, through that journey, what's a couple things or, or one thing that you learned that wasn't necessarily um, through curriculum or through um, acquired knowledge? You know, it, it was more from people or from just living a certain experience. Yeah. Um You know, I think that um, one of the things that surprised me that I, I did get in my education, that it was before my PhD, so <laughs> I think this fits with your question. Okay. Um, it, it surprised me um, how much I loved being mentored um, and then how much I wanted to do it. Um, so, you know, a, the way that um, a research PhD um, program is kind of formulated is that it involves almost an apprenticeship model um, where you come in and you uh, have usually one major professor or advisor who you spend the, the duration of your degree with, you know? So um, for me, it was two years in my master's with David Matsunoto and four years um, at my PhD at Tufts with Linda Tickle-Degnan. Um, and, you know, you form a, a very important relationship with that person. Um, you know, so you have some classes that you take from different professors, and that's really important to get, um, you know, a, a breadth of knowledge. Um, but really, some of the most important work is done in these um, kind of informal meetings with your mentor, where you're hashing out, okay, what's important to look at? You know, how do we want to design this? How do we want to analyze this data? Um, and it, it really is kind of a a really formative interpersonal relationship. I would say, especially with Linda Tickle Degnan, um, she was just um, a, a wonderful mentor who made me want to be a mentor when it had never really occurred to me before. Um, so her background was that she uh, was an occupational therapist and uh, then was so interested in kind of disability and um, and supporting people um, who had disabilities in kind of feeling socially integrated and ensuring that society did integrate them, uh, that she went back to Harvard and got a PhD in social psychology. Um, so she had this really interesting kind of, you know, dual background um, and spent a lot of time talking to me again about kind of the values of our research, ensuring that we were doing research that 
meant something to people that would have an impact, a practical impact, an applied impact, um, rather than just doing research for, you know, um, for research's sake. Um, some of that we do, uh, but most of it we do with the ultimate goal of having a practical outcome. So, um, you know, and then I started more recently uh, to be a mentor of myself. We recently started a PhD program at Oregon State in the psychology department. And my first PhD student is uh, Brooke Bryson. Um, and she started with me three years ago. And that has been such a rewarding experience. Now I have a second PhD student who's in her second year, Emily Plakowski. Um, and, you know, I feel myself channeling Linda all the time when I'm mentoring them. Um, and I always just kind of aspire to, uh, to, to someday be as good as Linda was. Right. Yeah, no, that, that's awesome. And I, I love how, um, you know, you're, you're passing it on and because I mean really that's that's what um you know this show like I, I want this show to really encapsulate you know the fact that, that people influence people so I think that for you to have had this experience and now here you are uh you know it, in your career overseeing research overseeing a lab and you're trying to pass that on I think that's you know, that's what it's all about. So that, that that's awesome. So I have to ask you, and this is interesting to me, and I think just in general, because so I know that you moved from the Gulf Coast to the West Coast. And if I'm correct, if I'm not, let me know. But if, if I'm correct, you moved um, from the Gulf Coast to the West Coast primarily um, for OSU. Is that right? Actually, <laughs> that is correct that there were some other moves in between. So I've actually moved to the West Coast twice, actually three times. <laughs> okay. Um, but, but you're right. I started I started in the Gulf Coast, um, like you, and uh, my first move was to San Francisco for a summer internship when I was an undergrad um, at a literary journal called Zoe Trobal Story, which um, was one of the best literary journals in the country. It had just won a national magazine award and so i was super excited to to be there even as an unpaid intern um and this was at the time in my undergrad where i still wasn't sure if i wanted to go the psych route or the english route um so i lived there briefly for three months during that internship and it was just such a great experience um and you know once the internship was over i had to go back home to baton rouge louisiana where i was you know um, born and raised uh to finish my degree at lsu and um i have to say you know was, I, I liked my time at lsu but um you know i, I was kind of disappointed to to have to go i really loved my experience in san francisco um and it wasn't until then that it really occurred to me that there was a wider world that I could um, 
that that was um, accessible to me. I mean, I knew I could travel and and stuff like that, but um, most of the people I knew in my community kind of um, stayed where they grew up. Um, and it didn't occur to me that it was an option to you know move away to a place that um, you know maybe better suited me. Uh, so after that, I, I kind of had the I had that interest. And luckily I did because when you're looking for, um, you know, like a, a PhD program in psychology, uh, they're very competitive, really hard to get into and um, pretty geographically dispersed. So almost no one is able to just, you know, a, if you're able to find a program that's in your town, um, it's unlikely that you would win the lottery and get into it. Um, so it really benefits you if you're open to moving, and I was. So, um, yeah, so my, my grad school actually took me back to San Francisco, which I was super excited about. And then I, so that was... <laughs> Gulf Coast to West Coast, move number two. <laughs> um, and then for my PhD, you know, you, you have to do the same thing. Um, when you apply for a PhD program, you're really looking for um, a really good fit with that mentor, not so much um, where it is. Uh, and in this case, Linda Tickle-Degnan was the best possible fit for me. So I, I made a cross-country move uh, to Boston stayed there for four years. And then when I finished my degree, that's when I moved to Oregon for my job at OSU. Um, so I often look back and say, well, if only I could like have consolidate the moves better, you know, <laughs> without a whole lot of that cross country moving in between, it would have been a lot easier, but I wouldn't have gotten to live in all those cool places. Right. Well, it just means that your last move was really good because you were a pro at it, right? It's true. <laughs> well, it's really neat to me because so I actually just moved. Um, I was also I was born in Houston, Texas, which is near Louisiana, and yeah. so I in the past year I just moved to the West Coast. Now I'm I'm in San Diego, and the whole the whole ritual of you know packing your stuff because i i mean i drove i'm not sure if you drove or, or you flew yeah. when you initially moved out but I, I drove so you know the whole ritual of just figuring out what you're taking packing and then driving or flying and you know crossing all this all these states to, to get to your to this new place that you know you can go online and google and do a search about what's around but really until you get there you know it's it's it, you don't really know what it's like. So I just think, and and like you were saying, you know, really, I think if you look at the data um, that's out there in the, the literature about numbers and, and people who move versus, you know, stay in their home state or their hometown, I think it's re relatively low number of people who actually venture out. And I think you bring a good, a good point up that obviously if you're looking at PhD programs, that's one area that you're probably going to have to move um, to find the right match and, and the right fit for you. But all in all, I just think it's really interesting how some people take that, take that plunge, take that move and others for whatever reason um, 
you know, don't get to experience that that type of change and travel. So just really kind of a personal interest of mine, but I think overall very, very, very neat topic. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think you learn a lot about yourself when you when you do a big move like that, you know, like you say, just the ritual of um, kind of deciding what's important to take and what you don't need. And, you know, that all the practicalities that you have to plan for and, you know, making the journey driving, which is what we always did, um, planning the route and, you know, trying to find a place often from the distance, um, and then and the getting there and, you know, starting to live your life there and seeing what's different and what's the same, you know, obviously there's a lot more the same that's different, but the differences are really enlightening, you know, like I have, I've learned that there is some small truth to the stereotypes about, you know, people who live on the West coast versus live on the East coast um, in terms of kind of temperament. I mean, certainly not everyone is like this, but, you know, I, I have noticed kind of a bit of a difference between, um, you know, people in Northern California and Oregon have been generally a bit more kind of laid back. Um, I even say about Oregon in a loving way that there's kind of this like earnestness, but lack of urgency, um, right. which at first, <laughs> at first was really jarring to me because I immediately came from Boston where the opposite is true. Every, you know, in general, there was a lot more kind of high stakes feeling. Everything was fast paced. Um, and so when I first got to Oregon, I was like, <laughs> hurry up. I need to get this stuff done. Um, and then I started to kind of slow down my own pace and enjoy it. Um, but yeah, being able to see kind of the different ways of being, even within the United States, has been really interesting. Yeah. No, the parts that... of me that stayed the same and the parts of me that changed too when I move. Yeah, definitely. And so currently in, um, in Corvallis, so you you live with um, Bo, your husband, and then I believe you have a, a pet. Is that correct? Yep, I have two cats. Yeah. Um, Morty and Marla. Oh, okay, there you go. <laughs> and and um, they, they've actually, uh, Marla has actually been on all of our moves with us. So we got Marla in Louisiana when we still live there. Uh, she's 16 now and she has no idea that she is, you know, one of the most well-traveled cats because <laughs> she's lived in San Francisco and then Boston and now in Oregon. Um, and, you know, she's an inside cat, so she really has no sense of what's going on in the outside world, but uh, she does not like U-Haul trucks. I mean, <laughs> no one does, really. <laughs> <laughs> wow, she sounds very classy. Oh, yeah, she's she's well-traveled, she's so wise. <laughs> she doesn't look a day beyond two. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. <laughs> so switching back um to to your research and um, I guess you know what's been going on the past couple of years. So 
I I saw that you you've had a lot of work published in in various um, I guess I should call them health or, or medical uh, journals, but also I see that you have some some um, other article or some other uh, media coverage and uh, different articles in in uh, media like the the Time and uh, the New York Times and uh, Portland Portland News, and so you know obviously you put a lot of effort and, and work and determination into your education and, and into your research. So now that you're at a point where, you know, you can see all these things um, are out there and, you know, they're, they're being um, put out to a large audience. Um, that has to be, uh, I mean, you know, a, a nice feeling for you. Um, and I'm just curious as to your thoughts on, you know, how that, I mean, seeing that out there, how it, kind of makes you feel or I guess what that makes you um, does that you know make you uh, kind of put together more more goals for future work or what's your thought on that yeah um, you know I mean the the undergrad version of me who went to the library and only found three articles about Mobius um, is thrilled that there's more information about Mobius and psychology now. Um, and so, so that is, you know, that was a goal that I set for myself early on and um, so happy that, um, you know, there've been things in the New York Times, not just about me, but about, you know, several other members of our, of our community um, uh, and, and things like that, you know, uh, I think um, early on, I was upset not only by the lack of representation in psychology, but just the lack of representation of Mobius or facial paralysis in um, our culture and society and media in general. Um, so, you know, I think that when when this information gets out there in um, you know an accurate way that it, it really has the power to improve people's lives um, you know and that's that's not always the case there I think there are also some harmful portrayals of <coughs> excuse me of disability and uh, facial paralysis but what I mean by um, an informative portrayal is one that um, is accurate and in, and um, shaped by the people living with those conditions. Um, sometimes I, I get pretty angry when I see articles or media coverage that is um, very kind of sappy and sensationalized, like clickbait, um, that really just serves to uh, cause people to pity people with disabilities or facial paralysis um, rather than relate to them or understand more about um, their lives. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually really careful when I talk to the media now uh, to be sure that they are familiar with, um, for example, Face Equality International's guidelines for covering a facial difference, uh, which ensures that it's covered in a non-biased way. 
so you know that's one safeguard that I that I try to ensure. But you know when when it is covered in an unbiased way, it really benefits us all because people will have heard of facial paralysis and Mobius syndrome and um, will be more aware of the fact that um, someone with an appearance like ours could have this condition instead of making uh, erroneous misconceptions about you know, intelligence or friendliness and things like that. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one of the major goals in getting this stuff out there. Uh, and, and it has been really nice, uh, both to, of, you know, I've been talking about having media coverage. It's also been great to get coverage and get papers in uh, psychology and medical journals where I know that I am raising awareness among uh, medical professionals and researchers who, you know, can then carry on uh, or carry forward these ideas. So um, it has been really cool. Um, there's been a few times when I've been recognized from my article in the New York Times or um, other various coverage. Um, and it's funny, it happens, it always seems to happen when I least expect it. Uh, you know, it'll be like when I'm walking around whatever town I'm living in at that point, um, or it'll happen at psychology conferences a good bit. Um, but I like to say it's kind of given me a more optimistic view on people. So so this is this is what it is. Um, when When you have... Uh, facial difference, people notice that you're different and they, you know, look at you a little bit longer sometimes than they would uh, a person who didn't look unusual just because, you know, usually they're curious, uh, they want to understand. Um, occasionally it's uh, malintent, but usually not. And, you know, it used to be that I had no other attribution to make other than, oh, I look different and they're trying to understand me, which is fine. It is what it is. Um, but, you know, now I can make an attribution. Maybe they recognize me right. <laughs> because it has happened a few times when, when I've seen someone kind of looking at me like intensely and, you know, it, to the point where it actually made me feel a little bit weird. Like, what's what's about to happen here? And then they, you know, introduce themselves and say, oh, I, I saw you in the New York Times or whatever. So oh, that's so neat. That's awesome. Yeah. It's like, you know, I mean, I know sometimes. I have this discussion with um, friends of mine who have either Mobius or other conditions, but a lot of times um, people might approach us and, uh, you know, ask a question or, or um, make a comment that may or may not be good or bad. But uh, no, I, I think it's, it's cool that in this instance, you know, you have a situation where people are coming up to you um you know, uh, to, to say hi and they, and, and they see you as someone that has done, you know, this work or is, is behind this, um, this research that is interesting. So that, that's, that's really cool. And I know I've given you, I've given you a lot of different, uh, kind of questions and we've gone a couple different, uh, ways with topics here, but, 
Um, I guess, you know, we have to end the show with a bang here. So I might be posing the, the most difficult question yet. And that is what's one of the biggest lessons that you've learned about or from people? Yeah. Um, that the biggest lesson to me is the um, the value of solidarity and companionship. So um, I mean that that goes right back to you know the first town I went to in Mobius Syndrome Foundation conference, and for the first time met other people who looked like me, had a lot of the same very you know otherwise unique life experiences and as me, and you know, we could immediately kind of cut through the small talk and, and say, isn't, isn't it annoying when, you know, this happens or what do you do about this, you know, and just kind of this um, natural sense of family that, that happens in a situation like that. Um, and I felt that many times in my life uh, about a variety of identities that I have, you know, like when I went to the broader facial paralysis meetings, um, when I've been in various clubs, even when I was in grad school, I, you know, I had a um, really great cohort. I just felt that I belonged there. And we had this kind of shared sense of solidarity where we would, you know, support each other and help each other out. Um, but, you know, I think it, it's really broad too. It's, it's about, you know, the identities that are important to you at, at any given time, you know, um, and, more recently, I started to really try to um, increase my solidarity with the disability community. Um, so, you know, uh, people with facial paralysis may or may not identify with the term of disability. I happen to. Um, it took a long time for me to get to that point. Um, but, you know, I, I started to study uh, disability history and like the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I learned that, um, for example, the ADA defines disability as um, anything that uh, can disrupt, you know, communication, uh, body function, uh, activities of daily living, a variety of things. Um, so my communication is affected by Mobius. Um, but the other, the other part of the ADA is that whether or not you actually have a disability or consider yourself to have a disability, if someone else discriminates against you on the basis of their belief that you have a disability, then you are covered by the ADA and you essentially are considered to have a disability under that law. Um, and that that kind of makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, we've heard stories of members of our community having a lot of job discrimination. I've experienced it myself. Um, so you know, that is something that most people with disabilities experience. Now, I, I have a very different um, physical experience than, you know, lots of other people with disabilities. There's a lot of unique nuance there, but um, the, the social construction of what's acceptable and what's not and what should be 
included and accommodated and what shouldn't um, is universal. And all of those people who are, you know, defined by society as uh, not being acceptable, we feel solidarity with each other. And even if we're very different and there's strength in that solidarity, I'm learning a lot from the broader disability community. And there's a lot to be said about gaining rights by joining up with a large community like that. You know, um, the Re Rehabilitation Act and the ADA were passed because of broad multi-disability activism. Um, and so, so that's kind of a, a new part of companionship and solidarity that I'm um, exploring and, and hoping to become better at. Yeah, and I mean, those are, yeah, those are some great points. And I know for myself, it's, you know, because obviously, um, there's disabilities that um, I guess society has kind of, you know, at one point they weren't seen as needing to have accommodations or, or they weren't, they weren't seen as um, a majority of, you know, society. So there wasn't as much attention given to what, you know, their rights or, or their accessibility. But, but then you got to a point, for instance, you know, at some point, um, individuals who were in wheelchairs, um, you know, th there was there was um, policy put, put into place that said, you know, certain certain places had to have uh, ramps for wheelchairs. So um, I think right now, you know, in my opinion, for, for someone like me with a facial difference, um, you know, the hope is that we get to a point where society or uh you know the majority of people understand that um you know this this is our situation and you know at some point we should be given um not so much accessibility because i'm not quite sure what that looks like but i think overall the point is you know someone like me i just want to be looked at as the, the entire person and and uh, you know, at some point, I I do believe that we'll get there. So, um, just really good stuff. Um, all right, everyone. Well, we are at the end of the Person Podcast episode one. Today's guest was was Dr. Kathleen Bogart. Kathleen, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much, Stephen. Yes, um, and. Everyone, today you heard um, about Dr. Bogart's work in, in research. You heard about um, some of her experiences um, in, in undergrad and grad school. You heard that she has driven across the U.S. more times than probably anybody wants to, um, but she, she, she's done it all with a, a great a work at worth ethic, uh, ethic and um, attitude and she's definitely doing things to foster awareness and better times for people in the world so for that we we thank her and i'll be back next time with another guest um on the person podcast so i'll see you then